So um, let me give you some context, right? We started back in Genesis last week. So this is just our second week back going through the book together. We did a short series on the family. You remember that. Go listen to the podcast, catch up. Uh, Good stuff. Uh, But you remember back in chapter 28, Jacob uh, was given directions from his mother, Rebekah, to flee because Esau was out to get him. And also instructions from his father, Isaac, to flee but not so much because of Esau, but simply to go and find a wife. Both Rebekah and Isaac wanted Jacob to go back to their homeland where they were from, right? Even though God was giving them this new land, go back there temporarily, find a wife of your own kind, and then come back to the Canaan land. Uh, so Jacob leaves to go to uh, Haran, and he has this vision halfway through, right? Or however far he was. He stopped in the middle of the night took a nap, put the stone by his head. He has this awesome dream, this vision. What is in the dream? There is this ladder, and there are angels ascending and descending upon the ladder, and the Lord is above it all. And the Lord speaks to him and affirms the the covenant blessing, passing the baton from Abraham to Isaac and now to Jacob. And the Lord confirms that he will keep this covenant with Jacob and that he will be with Jacob And then Jacob wakes up, and he's like, whoa, I I did not know I was in the presence of the Lord, right? And so he grabs a stone, he sets it up as a pillar, and he says, the Lord's house is here. He has made his dwelling with man, and he commits himself, he devotes himself, he makes a vow before the Lord. As long as the Lord is with him, he will walk with the Lord, and he will uh, give his tithe, he will bless the Lord, he will live sacrificially committed to the Lord. Remember, we spent a lot of time going over what it means for God to reveal himself. To us, right? And, and we looked at Jacob's dream and we talked about general revelation and special revelation. Uh, God has decided to reveal himself through these means. Uh, anytime the Lord speaks, that is special revelation. And he's spoken in his word, 66 books of the Bible that we have, so we're not looking for God to speak to us, right, through dreams and things any longer. Uh, but nevertheless, when we hear from the Lord, we don't walk away the same. When God speaks, our eyes get wide and we get a little fearful like Jacob and we respond with commitment. And so that's what Jacob does. He commits himself to the work of the Lord. And during this next passage here, the the events that takes place in chapter 29, it seems like Jacob has a new ethic about him. He seems to be a different man, a different person. He's headed toward Haran to find a wife. And he has been changed. But we must know that once a man has been born again by the Holy Spirit of God, regenerated, converted, made alive, new creation, he begins the arduous journey of discipline and spiritual maturity. We learn pretty quickly after we come to Christ that it's not hunky-dory, right? The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And we've seen the Lord's hand of providence throughout Genesis. We've also seen the Lord's hand of discipline to all of these patriarchs. And Jacob, certainly, the deceiver, is not exempt from the discipline of the Lord, is he? And so we'll see that in this chapter. Um, On the path of sanctification, God may use evil schemes of man to discipline us. And in doing so, makes us painfully aware of our own sin. This is Christian growth and spiritual maturity. God 
uses the evil that happens to us as a form of his own discipline. And we know his discipline is grace. We know his discipline is love. Amen? So we see three parts to this passage. We see lazy shepherds, an underhanded uncle, and an awkward honeymoon. Lazy shepherds, an underhanded uncle, and an awkward honeymoon. Uh, So if we look at, again, the first few verses here, Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. Literally in verse 1, Jacob is a changed man. Literally in in the Hebrew, he, he got up to his feet. He rose to his feet and, and began doing something. He went on this journey and he set out to find a wife. And as, what's it say in verse 2? As he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of the sheep uh, lying beside it. Um, there are so many parallels here from back in chapter 24. What happened in chapter 24? Abraham was looking for a wife for his son Isaac. But he was an old man. Instead of going there himself or sending Isaac, he sends excuse me, his servant, probably Eleazar, to go and find a wife back in their homeland in Haran. Uh, go back to, to Laban, right? And they, we meet Laban in chapter 24. Uh, but there's so many parallels of what happens there. Because what happens? The, the servant goes to Haran, and what's the first thing he finds? A well, right? And he's got camels, and he's like, Lord... The lady who wants to give the, my camel some water, right? And who's the first woman he meets? Rebecca. Rebecca. Back in chapter 24, right? We're paralleling what happened a few chapters back. Um, and so we see in that story, God was provident to provide literally the first woman and bless the journey of, of uh, this servant who was so concerned about what was going to take place. Uh, God was provident to give Rebecca to the family so Quickly, though God wasn't mentioned at all. And in this passage, God is not mentioned at all. But we see that God was here. God led Jacob to the well. God led Rachel to the well during this time. And Jacob's attitude in chapter 29 shows that he clearly believed the Lord was with him. He he rose up to go and find a woman. He knew the Lord would provide. And so he approaches this well at an opportune time, doesn't he? It's watering time for the shepherds. It's high noonday. They should have already been watered by now, but there are already three flocks there. And he sees these shepherds and he's like, hey, what are you guys doing? He calls them my brothers, recognizing that they are of the same uh, nationality, ethnicity, whatever. Um, and, you know, these, these shepherds are just kind of like, you know, construction workers sitting around, not, not doing anything, waiting on that road to get built, right? Um, they're not watering the sheep. They're just sitting there at the well with the sheep. And they go through this whole thing about the stone being on the well. And they're like, well, we can't water the sheep until all the other sheep get here at the same time. Uh, which seems to be some kind of excuse. Um, and remember Jacob and Esau? Jacob was the brother who liked staying inside. He was the brother who liked cooking with mom. He didn't like going out and working and hard labor and things like that. Uh, But here he is now with these shepherds, and he says to them, Do you know Laban? They say, Of course we know Laban. Is it well with Laban? Of course it's well with Laban. In fact, look, here's Laban's daughter coming this way right now. It's Rachel. And so he turns, he sees Rachel, and he decides he's going to move the stone. And he's not a shepherd. He's not a day laborer, but 
He is a changed man. Rachel approaches. Jacob springs into action, and he takes it upon himself to water these sheep. And we see a really cool Hebrew word repeated here that we saw back in chapter 28. In Jacob's dream, that word behold, we saw behold a ladder. Behold angels going up and down. Behold the Lord standing above. That same word it can be translated look or see is also repeated three times here. Almost like reiterating, going back to the dream the Lord was providing. Look, a well. See, a sheep are gathered around the well. Look, Rachel is coming with the sheep. The vision has come full circle. And because of these events, Jacob has every bit of confidence that Rachel is the one. This is God's providence. So what does he do? He kisses the old gal. Right? I don't think this was a romantic kiss. This was probably a familial kiss. They were kissing cousins. Uh, he probably embraced her. And it says he wept loudly because the Lord took care of him. The Lord led him directly where he needed to go. So much for the uh, I kiss dating goodbye guy, right? Uh, you know that dude. Uh, anyways, um, so they're not married yet, but he kisses her. And um, he explains to her who he is. And then she goes to tell Laban. Uh, the biggest thing to notice here in this first portion of the scripture is Jacob's change in ethics. Previously, Jacob didn't lift a finger unless it served him. Jacob didn't do anything unless there was some selfish motivation behind it. And even then, instead of actually working to obtain that thing, he would try to scheme a way around it. Right? He would manipulate the situation to benefit him without really having to lift a finger. But here he is now watering sheep that don't belong to him. Moving a stone that would have usually taken several shepherds to lift up off of the well. Because they were being lazy. Jacob is not who he used to be. Family, after we meet the Lord, we receive a whole new set of ethics. Don't we? After we come in contact with the revelation of God, we change drastically, every part of us. And for Jacob, same thing with us. We know the Lord is with us. We represent him everywhere that we go. And we are after his glory. We are devoted to him above all. So then, Christians become the hardest workers in any workplace. We become the most diligent, the most ethical the most motivated, the most, most generous. Um, and Christians ought to be that way in any, any workplace. Um, I love using my previous job illustrations because I've had so many strange, awkward jobs throughout my short life. Uh, but one of them um, was a uh, summer construction job back in Wake Forest. And, uh, you know, seminary town, so there's, there's people coming in and out, uh, seminary uh, students that are getting jobs. And I was literally, my, my job was laborer, whatever they wanted me to do. If they wanted me to dig a hole, I'd dig a hole, right? Um, but <laughs> but uh, previously, I, I replaced another seminary student. And they all had this joke around the crew that they called him Speedy because he wasn't Speedy. <laughs> because he was the slowest dude on the crew and never got in a hurry for anything. And so that was the reputation of the seminary. That was the reputation of Christians. And they thought, oh, we got another speedy on our hand, one of those seminary boys coming over here to work. On the other hand, I worked at UPS in Shelby. 
for some time when we first moved here. And um, I got to work uh, with a Christian there. His name was, ironically, Isaac, same as the text here. And people hated working with Isaac because he worked so fast and so hard. And he would not slow down the entire shift. And so this is the way it ought to be. And this is part of Christian discipleship. We teach one another what our work ethic is. We teach one another how to put our hands to the plow, how to be diligent, how to be faithful. Uh, we know what, what uh, Solomon wrote, the wisdom of Proverbs in chapter 6. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Paul writes, teaching the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So my point is that Paul commanded his churches to work diligently, to uh, live with this kind of ethic, and so we ought to command one another in the same way. When we see idleness in the body, we, we ought to call it out, right? The Bible commands this. And the question is, if we're idle, have you met the Lord? You know, Have you seen what the Lord has done for you? And uh, of course, there are, there, are, there are caveats and health concerns and things like that. But all of us have a desire, a work ethic uh, that has been given to us by the Holy Spirit. Um, we don't just have new hearts. We don't just have new minds. Right? We have a new unction within us to do hard things. Uh, so God is clearly with Jacob. Jacob's a changed man. But God's providence and our good deeds don't keep us from suffering or persecution. Right? Just because God is blessing us or we're doing what we should be doing, again, does not mean life will be easy. Sometimes we encounter an underhanded uncle. Look at verse 13. We meet Uncle Laban for the second time. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Uh, who's Laban? My mother's brother, right? It was repeated several times. Um, we remember when the servant went back to find a wife for Isaac. He met Bethuel and Laban. Bethuel was Rebekah's father. Laban was Rebekah's brother, so this is um, his, uh, his, Jacob's uncle. Uh, and Laban and Bethuel, back in that chapter, were pretty faithful. They didn't want to get, away, get in the way of what the Lord was doing, but they were very hesitant to give Rebekah's hand away, weren't they? Uh, you might remember that. They, they wanted to say, well, why don't we wait a few days, right? Or what, what do you think about this, Rebekah? Uh, but they did have to come down and say, ultimately, at the end of the day, we cannot stop what the Lord is doing. Uh, and Laban greets Jacob the same way that he greets this servant, with warm and generous 
feasting, right? Come into my house. Let me make you a meal. You are my bone and you are my flesh. I know that we are related, even though we, I don't think they'd ever met. Uh, but they were family, and he immediately treats him like family. Uh, Jacob was commanded to just go and stay for a short while, come back with a wife. But here he is already staying a whole month. And Laban begins to butter him up. And Jacob gets so attached that he ends up staying here in Haran for several decades. And it says in chapter 31 that the Lord had to remind him that he said he was going to go back to the Canaan land, right? He wasn't supposed to just go back to the land of Nahor and stay there. So Laban says, if you're going to stay here, you're going to be one of my own. I might as well pay you. You know, I'm not going to let you work for nothing. What can I pay you? And, and, and Jacob, of course, says, well, how do you feel about unconventional uh, payment methods? Um, I, I'm really keen to your daughter, Rachel. In fact, I'd be willing to work seven years for you to earn her hand in marriage. And Moses then explains that there are two daughters. There is Leah, the older daughter, who has weak eyes. And there is Rachel, the younger daughter, who is described as beautiful in appearance. Leah, her name literally means weary. And Rachel, her name literally means Ulam. Uh, she was a shepherdess, and she also was the younger one. Um, and so, you know, there may be something to the names that's fun to study, right? Um, but what we see here is this little motif of the older and the younger. When was the last time we saw the older and the younger? Esau and Jacob. The older and the younger, right? Something's coming back here. This, this means something. Uh, we'll come back to that in a, ma- in a minute. But Jacob loved Rachel. He was willing to work seven years for her. And he said that it literally would feel like only a few days Compared to seven years. Ladies, get you a man who will say sweet nothings like that. On the positive side of this, we see Jacob is still a changed man. The first clue in Jacob's conversion was the generous work ethic compared to his previous indoor lifestyle. Now, the second clue of his conversion is that of patience, long-suffering, And selfless sacrifice. Jacob was once defined by his greed and cunning. Now he is an admirable bridegroom. Willing to work fairly to pay the bride price for the woman that he loves. No scheming. No stealing her. No manipulation. I will be patient and do this the right way. Right? And his his name, let me remind you, literally means... Deceiver. And here the deceiver is choosing to give himself away for love. And so it is with all those who undergo the baptism of Jesus Christ. Christ is our only hope at wiping away our past, our old names, and given, giving us a new reputation, a new identity in Jesus the old is gone. The new has come. The gospel is bigger than our past. The gospel is bigger than our upbringing. The gospel is bigger than the, the obstacles that we claim that keep us from growing in holiness. The gospel changes us completely. I don't care who your mom and dad were. 
I don't care how long you're in prison or what crimes you committed, right? Paul says, I am what I am. And what I am is a new creation. A new person bought by the blood of Jesus. Do you know that Christ has forgiven your every sin? If you are in him, everything, everything, the sins of your youth, gone, remembered no more. The gospel accomplishes far more than we are aware of. On the not so positive side of this, we get our first clue that Laban is out to trick Jacob. The deceiver is being deceived. Leah was the older. Rachel was the younger. Where else have we heard a story about the older and the younger? Jacob fancied the secondborn, but the firstborn would get in his way. Has the firstborn ever gotten in Jacob's way before? And so here, he's getting a taste of his own medicine. Even though things seem to be going well for Jacob, he is about to reap what he has sown. The deceiver is being deceived in the exact same fashion he deceived his own family. And that leads us to an awkward honeymoon. Verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. That will come back with these servant uh, ladies. Um, It says in verse 25, And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? So Jacob finishes his seven years. He's trying to hold Laban accountable. Maybe time has passed. Maybe he's even worked over now. And he's like, what's the hang up? What are we waiting on here? Give me my wife. Laban agrees. He doesn't bat an eye because he knows just what he's doing, doesn't he? So he goes to prepare the wedding feast which was typically a seven-day festival in the community, uh, a big uh, deal. And on the evening of the first day, late at night, it's dark. She comes most likely wearing a veil. And it is not Rachel, but Leah. And they consummate their wedding vows. How, right? (laughs) How does this happen? And Jacob doesn't know. Like I said, it was dark. They don't have street lights there in uh, Haran. And she probably wore a veil. And I think Leah probably went along with her dad's plan of deception as well to um, deceive Jacob and earn a husband. But we also learn from the wedding in Cana back in John chapter 2 that there had to be an abundance of wine, right, at the wedding. So just throwing that out there as well. Jacob realizes it was not Rachel that he had married, but it was Leah. He gets up the next day. 
He confronts Laban. He says, why have you deceived me? The same word used in chapter 27 that was used to describe what he did to his father Isaac. Why have you deceived me? And Laban cleverly blames it on a custom of their culture. The firstborn has to be married first, he says. Simple little caveat, right? That he can get away with. And just as God is the one behind the providence in finding Rachel, God is also the one who deals discipline through recycled wrongdoing of man. The patriarch deceiver has met his, narch, or his arch nemesis in deception. And it's his own flesh and blood. Perhaps where he learned deception. Where Rebecca learned deception from her own family. And here's, here's what I want to draw out. God uses the sins of others to bring us face to face with our own besetting sins. God uses the sins of others to bring us face to face with our own besetting sins. And he does this to sanctify us. It feels painful. We stop for a second. We say, you know, wait a minute. Jacob was changed. Why is this happening to Jacob now? Why isn't God blessing him? Why is he doing this to him? Why should he have to endure this kind of treatment? It's because the process of sanctification is not complete and is never complete until we are face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are continually being sanctified and coming face to face with our sin. The more we grow as a Christian, the more bitter our sin becomes, the more aware we are of our own sin, and the more aware we are of the grace of Christ to wash that sin and make us new. Justification, sanctification, glorification. Justification, being made right with God, sins removed, Jesus' righteousness applied to our account, one and done, finished, justified, right? Sanctification, on the other hand, is the hard, lifelong process of becoming holy as He is holy, dealing with our sin, becoming more aware of it, fighting it, putting it to death, laying aside each weight and sin that clings so closely. And that's going to be our life. Until glorification. What is glorification? Seeing Jesus face to face and being made as he is. Finally, without sin. God uses every event in our lives to make us more like Christ. Sanctification happens when we read our Bibles. Sanctification happens when we pray. Sanctification happens when we, when we come to church, we fellowship with one another. But it also happens in literally every other thing you, you go through, right? God is involved in every part of your life. We tend to think God is most near us when things are going well. We have no hardships. Life is happy. But the God who calms the sea is the same God who brings the storm in the middle of the night when you're on a boat. Right? The Lord is in charge of all of this. And how does this help us? Again, what's the point? It shows us our sin. Suffering and being persecuted, being sinned against, being wronged, makes us feel things like nothing else and respond in ways like nothing else causes us to respond. It shows the true contents of our hearts and it shows how deep sin runs in us. Jacob was certainly becoming a more hardworking, patient, godly individual but he had to come face to face with his greed. He had to come face to face with his selfishness. He had to come face to face with his uh, ugly heart that wanted to deceive no matter what. And there's no greater way 
to see your own sin than to experience it in the face of someone else against you. The culture teaches us to cry, injustice, intolerance, that's not fair. But the word is teaching us to turn the other cheek, to bless those who revile us, to learn about our own sin when we are sinned against. When we are reviled, we learn not to revile. When we are cursed at, we learn not to curse. When we are gossiped about, we learn not to gossip. When we are betrayed, we learn not to betray. One of God's greatest graces to us is that He allows us to be sinned against. Usually by means that we are most tempted to use when we are going to sin against others. And this makes us holy. Perhaps you have a Laban in your life. You feel like life goes pretty good until you have to be in the same room with Uncle Laban. That arrogant, deceitful, crafty, contentious, gossipy person that you can't stand. You know who I'm talking about. Who is it? You can't stand them. Do you know that God has placed them in your life for your sanctification? And for your holiness? God has placed that person in your life, not so that you can run and not be in the same room as them, but that you can see them, look them in the face, and use their sin as a mirror for your own. So that you can cast off the ugliness of your own heart. So you can repent. And there's only one person that this doesn't apply to. There's only one person who was perfectly sanctified on earth and who was reviled and betrayed. He came to earth, fully God, fully man, son of God, son of man. He came to save sinners. And one of his own disciples, you know the story of Judas, traded in the Savior for a bag of coins. And it was that ultimate betrayal that led the Son of God to a cross of crucifixion in which He would atone for the sins of you and me. Through great wrongdoing has come the atonement of sin. Has come salvation. Look and see the wrongdoing of Christ. See your face in the crowd, mocking, scorning, crying, crucify. We put Christ on the cross. Innocent, not a word of guilt or deceit found in his mouth. Spotless, a lamb led to the slaughter. We put him on the cross. And it is our sin that went with him to the grave. When we cried for Barabbas, we were released. We became free in believing on Christ repenting of our sins, trusting fully in Him for salvation, in His blood and His blood alone, we become changed as Jacob was changed. And I invite you to come to Jesus this morning, repent, believe in Him, see the great work that was accomplished on the cross for you. Believe on Christ today. In the end of the story, Laban did allow Jacob to marry Rachel, but he said, wait till the end of the honeymoon, right? Give, give the full days, the wedding week. Now that the older is married, then you can now marry Rachel.
And this was only the beginning of Jacob's sanctification, wasn't it? Because now this patriarch would have to work for another seven years to keep Rachel's hand. He would be married to two women instead of one. First patriarch, we see that, unless you count Hagar. Uh, and that's going to cause problems, sister wives, right? One he thinks is prettier than the other. That can't cause problems, huh? One who's going to be barren, unable to have children. One that Jacob simply loved more than the other. He's going to have a lot of sin to be revealed in the days ahead. So let me ask you, what fruit in your life testifies that you've been changed by the power of the gospel? What's the first core statement of our new mission statement? A church that is transformed by the power of the gospel and is seeking to transform others through preaching the gospel. The gospel transforms us. What fruit is there in your life? And what fruit is there growing in your life? that testifies to God's presence. Maybe it's generous work ethic. Maybe it's patience. Maybe it's the ability to kill sins that once you did you in immediately. Maybe it's a newfound commitment and love for others and selflessness. Hospitality, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Where's the fruit? Identify it. Draw it out. Next question, who has sinned against you recently? Who has sinned against you recently? Who has hurt you? Who has wronged you? Who has committed evil against you? It may be that the Lord is using that very sin against you to draw out a sin in your own life that needs to be dealt with. That's what's going on with Jacob here. And are you running from that person? Or are you looking for God to sanctify you through that relationship? Are you trusting Christ to forgive that sin after you've identified it? To, to make you more and more like Him? That you are fully His regardless of what you've done? And questions for the church. Are we entrusting our reputation to Jesus? Do we believe that He can usher in a new reputation for Main Street? Do we believe that in this replant, uh, we can become... A new people, if indeed we express our clear and ultimate devotion to Christ and to Christ alone. And you know, sanctification is best friends with discipleship. If you're not discipling others or being discipled, you're, you're missing out on God's natural work of sanctification in the body of Christ. Who are you discipling? And who are you drawing out sins with? Who are you asking about their sin? Who's asking you about your sin? We want to see our church flourishing and growing and making disciples. And let me ask you this. What if it takes 14 years? What if it takes decades? We want it to happen next week, don't we? Yes. We must be patient. You know that Jacob was 77 years old when he went to Haran? And he still signs up for 14 more years. Good churches are made when faithful people commit themselves there and stay a really long time. That's what builds healthy churches. So the moral of the story here 
is that we ought to be of good courage because God is control is in control of every single evil in our life. The wrongdoing we go through is not without purpose. That purpose is sanctification. Don't run from it. Embrace it and be made more like Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.